Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with the One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I'm joined, as always, with my good friend, my business partner, uh, my brother in arms, uh, my main man with some gray hair on his head, uh, Mr. <laughs> Jason Johnston Yellen. And by some, I mean all gray hair. Oh, yeah. It's a, whole, it's a whole shed load, as we say. So, well, it's good to be here. Uh, back off the road. I had a lovely trip to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, that's got right. Got to see some great fans of Single Cast Nation in Boise, Idaho. I uh, got to see my own home group in uh, Moscow, Idaho, mm-hmm. and got to spend a few good days in Seattle as well uh, with the fine people at Barrel Thief and our, our good friends Lars and Natalie and Liz and Pat and, and Christopher Grombeck, of course, who owns the Barrel Thief. Yes. So, yeah, yeah it was a, a great week last week. Uh, Virginia was getting some of the fallout from Hurricane Florence. You know, so I, I, I heard I, from 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 a water perspective mm-hmm. that it was one of the the wettest hurricanes from a water perspective I, I i checked in with my wife and she said the rain was wet she did confirm that report okay so i when i was in the pacific northwest the sun was shining the sky was blue wet rain was falling in virginia and you know from her perspective was she i mean was she underwater was it i mean was there we, a situation where she's having a difficult time from a water perspective, it's really wet. You know, when, when we planned this podcast, however long ago we planned it, I never thought there would be back-to-back episodes where you could pull out your underwater voice. Oh, gosh. I and yet it. here we are. Yeah. We are living the dream now. <laughs> I so rarely get to use it, but uh, I think it's apropos, Jason. <laughs> um, and what about you? You've been out and about, moving around. You you haven't really left the have your larger home base, have you? No, no, I, I I haven't. Well, so you did go to Rhode Island. I did. I went to Rhode Island. I went to Massachusetts. There you go. I was in Niantic. That's in Connecticut, that, my friend. Oh, that sounds like a Connecticut name. And you were in New York City. And I was in New York City, and but after New York City, but before everything else, mm-hmm. I was in the Netherlands. Yes, attending. Yes, 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 yes. Perfect, perfect. It's funny. I kind of forgot you were in the Netherlands, and that was literally two weekends ago. I know. <laughs> so many things have happened since then. So many other places to go. Yeah. You went to the Netherlands for a weekend from the East Coast of the United States. I landed on the Friday, got to Maltstock, which is a good hour and a half from the Amsterdam uh, Schiphol Airport. Yep. Got to Maltstock at around 6.30 p.m. And on Sunday morning at 8 a.m., I was back at the airport. Uh, headed back home with one less liver with uh well you know i brought a spare i brought a spare (laughs) (laughs) um to to back it up a little bit both back it up and give a tease for a future episode all right uh i i was spending time with jason parker one of the co-founders of copperworks distillery in seattle yeah yeah, yeah. yep had a great great time with him and got a, a lot of uh uh 
I was going to say stuff, got a lot of audio for the podcast. But during our time together, he was climbing through the, the casks to find some fun samples for us to, to taste. Mm-hmm. And, and from up high, he looks down at me and he just says, you lead a really good life. and then he he said yeah you you get to travel around you get to go to these distilleries you get to sample you get to interview you get to talk and uh, that seems pretty awesome and I looked up at him climbing the casks I said when when a 30 year brewer and now owner of a whiskey distillery tells you that you're living a pretty good life (laughs) That is a big compliment. That is a <laughs> so, big compliment. <laughs> and so I've been kind of on cloud nine after that comment uh, for for the last week or ten days. So, okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll cover some good Jason Parker stuff, some Copperworks stuff uh, in a later episode. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice little tease there, by the way, Jay. You're getting better Thank at you. this. Thank you, thank you. Well, you know, we we have so much expensive equipment that, you know, we're so professional on the equipment side mm-hmm. that I'm trying to become more professional on the teasing side. Which reminds me, you know, as you know, I purchased some new equipment <laughs> to do my recording in the Netherlands, and I'm going to buy you one as well. You've been saying that all week. I haven't seen the uh, the order come in yet. I just haven't gotten to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, so so we're talking Netherlands, uh, talking malt stock, mm-hmm. uh, talking your interview with this is amazing, mm. Charlie McLean, yes, and and Alex Bruce, Charlie, you know, renowned whiskey writer, very much uh, Michael Jackson's generation, mm-hmm. and uh, Alex Bruce, now the man in charge of Adelphi. And all the great work they do as an independent bottler, but now also the work they do with the Ardner Merkin Distillery. Mm-hmm. Tremendous, Joshua. When you told me, oh, guess who I just interviewed? I was floored. I was really <laughs> excited. So so good job, sir. Yeah, you know, I, I, I haven't met either of them before. And, and Charlie was, he was one of these guys that I've always wanted to meet, always wanted to have a conversation with because... When you think of people in the whiskey industry, this he's got 37 years in it, writing about it, teaching about it, now being, you know, having his hand in independent bottling and also with with the distillery, Arden American. And he's got a face that is so recognizable. I mean, when it comes to scotch whiskey, it's unmistakable. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. and the mustache. The mustache, the monocle. The monocle. The accent. The accent. And so not knowing him, but knowing Hans Ofringa, who's good friends with him, you know, I went to Maltstock thinking, okay, I really want to talk with Charlie. He seems like a nice guy, but I don't know, maybe he doesn't want to be interviewed and maybe he's going to be too busy, right? You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know what his time would look like at Maltstock. And so before I even asked him to, to interview, he was just hanging out. Uh, when you go to, so let me explain malt stock quickly. Back it up. Yeah. This is an event put on by Chun Van Well and Bob Wenting. This is now their 10th year slash ninth anniversary of malt stock. And you get about 230 to 250 to, you know, somewhere in that area 
of people that hang out at this one place in the Netherlands for the for the weekend. And it's just a big camping grounds. Now, when you get there, there's a center pavilion. And in that pavilion, under some tents, uh, is table after table after table of whiskey bottles for everybody to open and enjoy. If you are an I've, attendee of Maltstock, I've seen the photos. You've seen the photos, right? You, These you, are yeah. remarkable tables, heavy with whiskey. <laughs> well, Part of the deal is you you buy a ticket to malt stock, but you have to bring at least one bottle of whiskey for others to enjoy. And so, and I'm sure there's nobody showing up with Johnny Red, right? Uh, there's definitely unless some it's dusty, unless yeah. it's from the seventies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, exactly. there you go. You're making my point. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, some people showed up with Johnny Red. It was from the seventies. Some of the whiskeys on on this table <laughs> that people brought in. Just, you know, some of it run of the mill, but a lot of it old dusty stuff or just yeah. odd, interesting bottles. And, and, you know, all of the presenters, you know, bringing some special bottlings to put to put on the table, myself included, put one of our Glenn Talker bottlings on the table. Awesome. But, uh, but I get to there and I see Charlie chatting it up with some folks and I just decided to walk up and say hello and... We, we had a wonderful conversation, and uh, a little later I met up with Hans and said, look, had a great conversation with Charlie. I'd love to interview him for the podcast. To be honest, I'm a bit nervous. He's one of these, you know, it's like meeting a rock star uh, in a way. And yeah, Should we go through his agent to arrange an interview? Right, yeah, it's one of those things. <laughs> and, and Hans said, no, 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 don't, don't you worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll connect you too, and... And anyway, J- Charlie was really keen to to talk, as was as was Alex. Awesome. And, um, well, and yeah. it, and it really shows we're we're going to have a little hybrid episode today. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of clips that we want to get started with. We will come back to these two chaps towards the end of the episode with their misconceptions. Yes. But then we've got a nice conversational portion of this episode. Yeah. Where it's really just you chatting with Charlie and chatting with Alex, and. It, and listening to the raw footage, it was smooth Ooh. conversation. Ooh, look at that. And the you, one time you allowed me to use that word. <laughs> well, you know, you've, you've got the proof. You listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> the proof is in the ABV. So. <laughs> so, yeah. so one of the things that we want to lead off with. Yes. And this is something you and I were discussing beforehand, Joshua. If you're somebody who moves in scotch circles... The name Charlie McLean resonates. You know immediately who that is. Oh, yeah. And, and we know that we've got a very good uh, bourbon following here. And, and so maybe some of our bourbon listeners aren't quite as familiar with Charlie McLean. And so you asked a, a lovely little question. What was your spark? What, what got you started in this? You asked this question of both Charlie and Alex. Mm-hmm. I think it will do a lovely job of just setting the table for the two chaps that you're going to be having a conversation with this episode. Cool. Should I, is that, is this where I insert the audio that you're talking it about? Is that, that was called a seamless transition, Joshua. <laughs> All right, let me stick it in. What was the spark for you that gave you, what infused the passion for whiskey? What was that moment? Me first? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, 
I was a failed lawyer. In oh, right. In the, in the sense that I, I completed my, my qualification, but knew that I was never going to be any good, so, so I, I got out. And I w always wanted to be a writer, and so I set up my place as a literary agent. Um, failed at that as well, the, or, no, no, in the sense that it didn't, didn't, there wasn't didn't, enough good, yeah. good authors to, to, to support me. And became a commercial writer, a copywriter, a free, freelance copywriter. And um, I wrote my first job for a whiskey company in 1981. This would be, this would be late 70s. Okay. And so I, okay. I, I wrote my first job for a whiskey company, which actually was Bell's, uh, a little brochure. Oh, wow. Yeah. And as it happened during the, the 80s, by this time I was writing books, okay. nonfiction, Scottish nonfiction, um, on the back burner. Um, but by chance, I, I did a lot of work for many whiskey companies during the 80s. Mm. Um, until by 1988, um, I'd become, well, A, very enthusiastic about the subject, uh, particularly the history of whiskey, mm. um, and B, with a sufficient qualification, if you like, to make a fist of a proposal for a book about Scotch uh, to a London publisher, sure. which was signed in 88, and then researched and published in, I think, 92. Um, and so that's what put me on the on the the professional track. Oh, okay. And since then, you know, I've just been. I've now written seventeen books about Scotch whisky. Wow. And wow. The, uh, so I've been in the game for thirty-seven years, in effect. <laughs> <laughs> what about wow. Alex? Yeah. Um, I suppose I, I, I split it into two categories. Uh, one is history, mm. um, um, and on both sides, uh, parents-wise, my father was involved in a, a business in Edinburgh, which um, had a great whisky, you know, offering. Mm -hmm. And growing up, we used to have a lot of the empty boxes kicking around. And I was always fascinated by the packaging. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. and, and, and took that right through to post-university, joined um, a well-known cognac company in the marketing department uh, and very much involved in that. And then, you know, brought the very different side of the packaging, which the French yeah. had in the Baccarat crystal, okay. the, the bling, if you like, yeah, yeah, back to yeah. quite, a, quite a sleepy uh, Scotch whiskey industry. Um, and on my mother's side, or in fact, my grandfather, her, her, her dad, uh, inspiring me with tales of his great-great-grandfather, mm, um, the, the famous Andrew Usher, yeah. who was really the pioneer of, of blended malt, yeah. of blended, of blends. Yeah. So I knew that I had a bit of history there. Did but you taste, say Usher? Yeah, yeah, Andrew yeah. Usher. Do you know Graham Usher? Yeah, yeah, very well. Ken yeah, Cole. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. a good friend. <laughs> and and I, in fact, we, I, met, I met him. Yeah. Um, I went as a, you know, selling my wares yeah. in Edmonton. And um, my uh, importer said, yeah, um, Graham will be in any minute to meet us. Yeah. Um, and, and I was looking around and I saw Usher's on the wall. Uh -huh. yeah. And I said, what's his second name? And she said, oh, it's Usher. So, okay. <laughs> so in what was Graham. It was, it was early in the morning and yeah. he was, you know, he wasn't widely awake. Yeah. And I said, um, I think we're cousins. So he looked at me with half an eye. It's funny. <laughs> and we've become great mates, yeah. So with the table set, Joshua. Yes. There, there's just a couple of of uh, breadcrumbs I would like to lay down for our listeners here. Okay. They're going to be listening to Charlie McLean mm -hmm. talking about his involvement with Adelphi, independent bottler of the highest regard. Without a doubt. In fact, I've got a little Adelphi in my glass. It's funny you should mention oh. that because I was going to point out that I don't. <laughs> but but as I was looking through my shelves in anticipation of recording this episode, mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, I don't have any Adelphi because when I get it, I drink it. 
or when I get it, I gift it. And I know that I've gifted Adelphi off to people. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and one of the bottles I was actually looking for that I know has been finished now was a 67% Glen Murray. The Glen Murray, not the Glen Rothis? It was a Glen Murray. No, this was a Glen Murray put out by Adelphi with a crazy high ABV on it. Yeah. And very red as well. Really good sherry presence. Interesting. Okay. But but it speaks to something that Charlie will cover and and, and Alex uh, will reiterate within your conversation is that Adelphi is known for, if you spend the money on them and you might spend a little bit more money than you ordinarily would, you know you're getting quality in return. Oh, yeah. And and that's been something that's kind of guided us with Single Cast Nation is you might be encountering Single Cast Nation for the first time, but if you've heard anything about it, if anybody's put a bug in your ear, the hope would be there's a good chance you're going to like it. It's going to be an interesting bottle and it'll do something that maybe nothing else on your shelf is Mm -hmm. doing. So with that said, I'm going to come back to a a secondary comment that I want to make, but because I've still got some other breadcrumbs to lay down, but I'm curious what's in your glass, <laughs> knowing that you've got Adelphi in there. So I, like you, when I get an Adelphi bottling, I tend to open it immediately, and I tend to drink it quickly and definitely share it with friends. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. They're great sharers. Right? Oh, without a doubt. Sometimes they they are so stunningly impressive and sometimes they're just good drinkers, right? They become session whiskeys in a way where, you know, it's just good sipping whiskey. So with that said, I'm, I've got to get more. But I'm down to two bottlings left, one of which is the 1965 Lockside, the single cask, single blend, black as night, uh, white whale of a whiskey. Mm-hmm. And I will open that uh, maybe when I turn 50, maybe when one of my daughters becomes bat mitzvah, maybe when they get married. I don't know. An occasion, if you will. Uh-huh. And the other I received as a gift <laughs> from you. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you, you know us. We did not set that up. We did not set that up at all. Um, so oh, that's you, awesome. Isn't that great? So uh-huh. you got me this. It was a um, a 16-year-old Klein Leash. Ah, okay. I couldn't yeah. remember if I gifted yeah. you Klein Leash or Imperial from Adelphi. Okay. Yeah, usually you gift me Imperial, but uh, but you you know that I have a love for Klein Leash. And this is from 1997, and I want to say something really quickly Yeah, yeah. about 97 Klein Leash. People hold Klein Leash 1997 distillate in the highest regard, especially, you know, those that follow independent bottlers in a similar way to how people hold 1993 Glendronach in high regard, the same mm-hmm. way people hold 1964 Invergordon in high regard. 1976 Ben Riach. Without a doubt. And so I had a question. I posed this question to David Stirk. The last time we saw him back in January, Mm -hmm. because I think we were talking about this bottling and I said, oh man, you know, it seems every 97 Klein Leash I have is, is outstanding. And I said, I posed the question, I said, is it just that Klein Leash is outstanding and there was 
a lot of 97 stock going around to broker through brokers to independent bottlers? And his answer was yes. Right? He said, yeah, it's just, you know, there's a lot out of it, and chances are a lot of it's going to be good. It's, it's, it's Klein Leash. So it, it changed the way that I think about vintages when it comes to Scotch whiskey, at least at least a little bit. I think with the Ben Riach mm-hmm. one specifically, there is something about 76 Ben Riach that is just unlike anything else and completely mind-blowing. Yep. But Klein Leash being so incredibly consistent, it would make sense with a lot of the 97 having gone out sometime around 2012, 2013, 2014. You know, it makes sense. You're going to see a lot of it. You're going to taste a lot of it. It's going to taste damn good. I'm not taking away from the quality of this whiskey. No, no, no. By such a statement, it's just a really damn good selection. So I, yeah. I thank them for selecting it, and I thank you for gifting it. Oh, you're very welcome, my friend. So I might not have Adelphi on my glass, but over the course of the conversation, you will be discussing the new Ardnamurkin distillery mm-hmm. uh, owned and operated by Adelphi. Mm-hmm. And so I happen to have in my glass, you'll see this, Joshua. <sighs> is that what I think it is? <laughs> uh, it's a crystal clear, clear as water. I have some Ardnamurkin new make spirit in my glass. How on God's green earth did you get that? <laughs> oh, I think I know the story to this. Can you quickly tell the story to this? Um, Is there um, a story to it? <laughs> kind of. In the spring of, I want to say, 2015, um, I did a quick tour of, of Scotland's newest distilleries with uh, Mark Connolly. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a good, good lad and, and well-known in whiskey circles as well. Was that three he's, years ago already? Yeah, yeah. He's he's known as the, the guy behind uh, Glasgow's Whiskey Festival. He did the Whiskey, Whiskey, Whiskey Forum. Mm-hmm. Uh, he helped to launch the Good Spirits Company in Glasgow. And and he had a, a blog like like we did at one point as well. And so he and I went out on this, this fantastic tour of the new distilleries. And uh, I picked up some Ardna Merkin New Make while I was at the distillery, and what I love, love, love about it is, yes, they were selling it in their distillery shop, mm-hmm. along with some serious Adelphi bottlings oh. as well. Um, but whereas those distilleries who make the decision to bottle mm-hmm. new make for sale, they tend to reduce it to maybe 50% alcohol, sometimes 46 and or 45% question, alcohol. Yeah. Yep. Ardner Merkin left theirs at their barreling strength of 63.4% alcohol. Look at that. Yeah. Yep. And so as as I'm laying these breadcrumbs for our listeners, if you listen through this, this conversation here, you'll hear Alex Bruce talk about the weight of their spirit. Mm. And I can confirm that in nosing this, looking at the oils in the glass and tasting it on my palate. Yeah. There is a nice, weighty, oily, barley note to this, yeah. along with some nice light fruits that one would expect to find in the distillation. So yeah, I think we've got a, a couple of wee beauties in our glasses this morning, Joshua. I would say so. And, and without saying anything about it, when, when Alex talked about... <laughs> how they were able to ad- adjust their process 
to ensure they're getting he- more heavy oils in their spirit. Yep. I never thought that you would consider what they did to get those oils in the spirits. Mind blowing. Never thought that part of the the process matters as much as it does. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. Our our intro where we're trying not to give anything away has now turned into clickbait. So <laughs> when they describe how they get oily spirit, your mind will be blown. I think it will. However, I think people like Skinny, Matt Skinny Roberts, mm-hmm. and a few others, um, without without giving too much information on that, <laughs> might say, oh, no, that makes sense. Like Once they hear it, they'll say, oh, no. That makes sense. Oh yeah. Oh no. I I think it's I think it's fantastic. I just think that we were introing it. <laughs> it's kind of oh I know. Oh I know. We've just accidentally become clickbaity. So without further ado, <laughs> you will not believe what you hear. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's hand it over to the two chaps and Joshua having a conversation with them in the Netherlands at the relaxed malt stock. One thing that I want to mention here before we move on to the clip, Jason, is Charlie and I are having a discussion regarding a movie that he was in, a film, and I don't think we actually name it in the interview itself, but I wanted to put it out there. It's the movie The Angel Share, which is well worth your time, just a really good, fun movie, and I personally thought that Charlie did a fantastic job in it. Yeah, I've been wanting to meet you for years because uh, of your writing, of course. How kind. And of your acting. (laughs) (laughs) Call it acting. I was just playing myself. But, but, But here's the thing. In the whiskey industry, I think people might say that. They say, oh, that's Charlie being Charlie. Obviously, I've never met you until yesterday. But people who know you say, oh, that's Charlie being Charlie. But he's great. But I think people who don't know you would say, that guy's amazing. Like, what, what a great part he's played in it. Uh, people come up to me in the street and yeah. say, uh, I recognize you. And I've, I've got so used to it that I say, uh, uh, where, where have we met before? No, yeah. no, but I recognize you. You were in that film. You were in that film, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I said, I was actually. And I immediately say, and sometimes these are got shaven-headed, tattooed creatures with piercings and so on. And, or they might be bishops, you know. I've yeah. been approached by bishops and judges. But yeah. They don't speak like that, of course. Yeah. But, they, uh, yeah. uh, and, and, but so I immediately say, did you like the film? Fucking great, man. Fucking great. I went to see it twice. Took my wife the second time. You know? So, I mean, it really is. It's, it's, it's been, thank God it's a good film. Yeah. Because it would be awful to be associated oh, with that. Oh, right. Film. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. I can add to that. Um, we were traveling to... I think probably Australia or New Zealand a few years ago, short, shortly after the um, uh, the film aired for the first time, yeah. and walking through Glasgow Airport uh, to the plane, Charlie was stopped probably four or five times. Ah, oh, you were in that film. You, you. Yes. That's, that's, uh, uh. Yeah. Anyway, we got into the final queue to board the plane, and this lady in her latter years approached Charlie and said, "Oh, that is." And Charlie went, "Yeah, yeah, I'm, I was in that film." He said, "What film?" <laughs> uh, and Charlie said, well, I thought you were going to ask about it. He said, no, no, no. I just like your monocle. <laughs> yeah, and that's the first thing I noticed about you was your monocle. I love that. Well, the story behind that, behind the monocle, Josh, was that the um, we've got a week, my wife has a wee cottage up in the north of Scotland. Mm. And um, no, no, no television, no communication, no telephone, nothing. All right. Very remote. And so 
when the weather's bad, as it often is in the north of Scotland, you read books. You yeah. read and read and read. It's fantastic. Sure. And um, uh, and about, about day one of this fortnight holiday, I, I broke my specs or one lens. You know? Okay. And I discovered that you know, I could read with 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 one, Just the one, one lens. Eyes, yeah. it's, a bit, it's a bit stressful, but reading books and so on. And shortly after I came back to Edinburgh, I was attending a meeting at the Malt Whisky Society, and uh, I'd left my specs behind, you know, so I couldn't I couldn't read the the minutes of, yeah. the, of the meeting. And I went round the corner of Queen Street and Hanover Street, and there was an optician's, you know, shop shop, and the uh, sure. And bearing in mind, I said, "Do you, do you by any chance do you sell monocles?" And they said, well, we, we don't have any in the shop, but we can get one in by tomorrow. And I said, great, no obligation, you know. And so uh, they said, yeah, no, no problem, no, no obligation. So I went back. And it is so useful because you, you can see it's dangling around my neck. Yes. And for it's always there. I've got my reading specs, you mm. see. But the uh, for, for, for little things like looking at the credit card, looking at the yes. mobile phone numbers yes. and silly things like that, um, it's so useful. And the... Uh, it causes. It causes. It's. 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 It's extraordinary. It, it, people. People. People do come up and say, "Yeah, I've never seen a monocle before." And the uh, uh, mainly, you know, young kids and and uh, you know. Uh, anyway, the. Uh, yeah. It's. It's. It's very practical. It's also become a bit of a trademark as well. Well, yes. Yeah, I can imagine. Please don't take this as an offense, but I remember there was. I think it might have been for November. Where there was a mush, mustache series, right? Yeah, that's and right. You, right. And you were you were one of the mustachioed yeah, and men. Serge and Dave Broom. Yes. And who was the fourth <laughs> one? Can't remember. But anyway, yes, I remember right. that. Mm. So between the monocle, the mustache, and if you had a top hat, <laughs> you could tie women to train tracks and just you know tweak your mustache. I, I well, think do you it's know? Great. Do yeah. you know? I have a, I have a bar named after me in Beijing. Really? Which is to be the first of thirteen such bars. Charles Whiskey Bar. Charles Whiskey Bar, and the logo for that is simply a monocle and a, a, a curling mustache. That. Oh, that's brilliant! It was so yeah. so yeah. It was so cool, really. Yeah. So, one of the things that I wanted to talk with both of you about, obviously, is is Adelphi with One Nation Under Whiskey, which is our podcast. Obviously, Jason and I we are independent bottlers, and we try to focus as much as we can on independent bottling, the history of independent bottling, those that are doing it now. And one of the things that I'm always curious about are the selections from the independent bottlers themselves. I, when I think about whoever it may be, whether whether it's Mark with Cadden Heads or uh, David Sterk with Creative Whiskey Company, you seem to, through the lens of those bottlings, get an understanding of the palates behind the people who are bottling that. And obviously you've got a bit of stock, probably a good bit of stock, but how are you making your selections when you, 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 Charlie, you had said you're doing about 100 casks per year, right? Oh, yeah, well. A little, little more than that? Oh, I should think a lot more than that, actually. Oh, it is a lot more than that. Not, well, not for Adelphi. Well, not for Adelphi. No, no, no. no, no. But the, uh, Adelphi was set up by Jamie Walker, whose great-grandfather oh. owned the Adelphi distillery in Glasgow, which was a huge concern. Uh, which he, he sold, he joined the Distillers Company Limited in, in 1902 or something. Mm. Um, the, the big distillery was closed. Um, uh, the, the grandfather went on to the board of the DCL um, and remained in the industry. His son, Jamie's grandfather, never worked. I don't, never had to work. Okay. Made a fortune. Um, Jamie's dad was a stockbroker in Glasgow. Um, Jamie then, and he, his ambition was to, to revive the name yeah. Uh, which he did in 92, was it? Yeah. 93, 92. 92. 
Um, okay. And um, I was introduced to him to, to write the promotional materials, the original promotional materials. Um, and then I became, I'd just done a course in sensory evaluation mm-hmm. with what's now the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute. Yeah. And so when Jamie had, J- Jamie had, after university, he worked for in the house distillers. So he knew a bit about uh, whiskey as well. So together we would choose casks. Now, okay. Alex came on the scene when Jamie sold the company to the, the new, the current owners in, was it 2002? Uh, 2003, yeah. Okay. That's when it changed. Yeah, and Alex was appointed marketing director and then now managing director. Over to you. <laughs> well, um, <coughs> I, I, I inherited a, a fantastic name uh, yeah. as in the brand with very little stock and right. uh, actually not that many bottlings, but what, what had been had been very successful and, yeah. and highly regarded. And we decided that, you know, you, you should never change a good thing. Um, sure. The only issue being that Jamie hadn't travelled very well. He didn't enjoy getting on airplanes, um, and I didn't mind it. So I yeah. got out and about, and within a couple of years, demand was far greater than supply. Sure. Um, so we're talking now, what, 2005, 2006. Um, by 2007, we realised that, that, that long-term, it wouldn't survive, uh, and certainly in, in the way we were building mm. it at the time. And, and not if we were continuing with the criteria of selection sure. that we still do. Yeah. Um, and that was so important. Uh, so we had this conundrum, you know, how do we get, how do we guarantee quality and quantity uh, for the future? Right. And the simplest on paper was to build our own distillery. Okay. Um, it, it's, you know, it's not necessarily the simplest thing to do, but it, <laughs> on paper it sounded great. Um, and then of course that was... Easy, the, just build a distillery. Yeah, that was the second phase. And we were yeah. very fortunate because... It was before the mad rush, um, yeah. if you'd like to say that. For stills and such. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. just in, in, in general terms, we had um, a huge amount of support from the likes of Anthony Wills at Kilhoman, who yeah. had just done it. Yeah. Brilliant, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, literally, he would open his books to us and say, this, this, is, yeah. this is what not to do kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he'd <laughs> gone through it. mistakes yeah, he made. Yeah. an amazing job. Um, he did actually tell me once that if we did build a distillery, um, then anyone asking him for advice in the future, he was going to send to me. <laughs> it was one of the conditions. <laughs> but look, it, it's a fan, fantastic. It's been, what, 14 years for me now? It's been the best thing I ever did. Really enjoyed it. And we've grown the company from basically one person and a couple of casks when I took it on yeah. to there's now 25 of us uh, and a distillery and all the rest of it. So, um, but we but still have to, the same ethos. Going back to your original question, the right, I mean, in the early 90s and well into the 90s, the, the casks that you could buy as an independent bottler were truly phenomenal. Yes. I mean, I, I often tell the story of sitting with Jamie, probably about 93, 94, and he'd been offered three butts of Springbank at 31 years old. <laughs> um, fresh full um, um, Yeah, butts. just first and, year. And they were, and you could only afford to buy one. And so we spent the whole afternoon sampling away, sampling away, trying to decide which one sure. which one he should buy. Yeah. And it was one of, but I mean, he, he always, I mean, the, 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 he was determined right from the outset that Adelphi should be, you know, a superior, the, the, the selection, right. the name of the, of the, the, the brand should be reliable such mm. that people mm-hmm. if it was an Adelphi bottling it was bound to be good you know, yeah. even though you might pay a bit of a premium um, and this whole philosophy was taken on by the new ownership by um, Alex and the, 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 the principal investors mm. um, 
Well, thank goodness, which of course means that see, it's very difficult to find whiskey of that quality nowadays. Well, I think you've, you've got a very good point. And from the perspective of independent bottlers who are buying, you know, we tend to buy from similar brokers. There's, there tends to be parcels of the same whiskey going Indeed. around. Yeah. But I've found uh, Adelphi, Cadenheads, maybe a couple others, maybe Signatory. You tend to bottle whiskeys that aren't the parcels that are going around right now. Which is well, I, uh, a good the, position you know, to be I'm in. Gonna, I'm going to pass this to, to Alex. Yeah. But the one thing I would say is that by the time they've gone through the mill, Alex, the, Alex calls up samples. They look at them in the office. He comes to me. Mm. We look at them together and decide which are which are good enough. Mm. The rejection rate is currently about eighty-five percent. Yeah, I mean, over a year, it probably comes in about the one in forty that we yeah. that we take. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but it, it varies on the parcel. Yeah. Considerably, yeah. um, look. I mean, we've been going long enough. We have good uh, historical relationships with certain suppliers. Sure, um, I'm not saying it will last forever, because you know, especially stock from that good old whiskey lock is drying oh, up. I know, I know. Um, but it, if you keep your criteria as it was meant to be, mm. um, then then you should do a good job. I mean, it doesn't. You don't have to go for the cherry picking the whole time. Yeah. But if you do, you've got to stick there. Yeah. And we have a very simple criteria, which is only bottling something that we both like. And and it's got to be drinkable. Yeah. You want to have another glass of it or another sip of it. Yes. Um, yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's the biggest cherried monster you've ever had. Yeah. If you don't want to drink another one, then what's the point? You know? Yeah. There, Jason and I were at Westland Distillery in March. And we've, we've bottled some Westland casks and... We were selecting some new ones, and we were having a difficult time figuring out which one we wanted. But we both found out, as we're deliberating between all the casks, we both found that we kept on going back to this one and mindlessly just nosing it, sipping it, nosing it, sipping it, and then realized, you know, we, we have a very particular way in which we select casks, but we realized that we needed the one that we were mindlessly going back to because we were just simply enjoying it. Mm, absolutely. And that is, I, I think, a criteria that maybe not everybody looks at, or, or maybe they do. Maybe they just say, hey, that's a great one. And others would, you know, go very deep into why it's great. But sometimes it's just great. Sometimes it's just good whiskey. No, I think, I mean, you, you, there's obviously in the back of your mind, there's a certain, a bit, a certain amount around the name the provenance, the age, the type of cask, all these kind of things. But mm. at the end of the day, it comes down to, would you have that second sip? Yeah. And uh, I think that's where Adelphi's always yeah. been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Can you talk to me a bit about the distillery? Sure. I mean, the first question people normally ask is, why Arden uh, right. If you haven't been there, then you, you wouldn't ask that. But it's one of the most remote places in Scotland. Yes. It's a single track road for about an hour. Yeah. Uh, it's just about as far west as you can get okay. in the UK. Yeah, going to an island. Yeah, I but met Ricky at uh, at the he was at the West Coast Whiskey Fage. Okay, last yeah, yeah. July, right. I interviewed him for great. for an episode of the podcast. Fantastic. He was brilliant, by the way. <laughs> yeah, he was great. Yeah, so it, it, the reason is, I mean, some of the land is under ownership of the same uh, same as us, but we want it to be a very symbiotic relationship yeah. between the surrounding farm. Sure. Um, so all our co-products are piped over the hill or picked up by trailer mm. and converted into animal feeds. Um, yeah. All the energy 
to heat and power the distillery comes from local resources so the water uh, is a hydroelectric yeah. um, scheme on the river and uh, wood chip which is delivered by tractor and trailer from the forest uh, for the fuel so that that circle that full circle mm. sort of symbiosis works very very well for a remote place it does help that one of the owners of the company of Adelphi owns the Ardnamurkan Peninsula so well, that the, does help. The, I mean, they, they pay rent. But look, pay you know, it, it's a classic example of, of um, adding value to what you have. Yes. And, yeah. you know, it'd be lovely to be able to copy and paste it somewhere else in the world um, based on those, mm. uh, on that reason, or that reasoning. Uh, but beyond all that, we also have a fantastic uh, supply of water, quality of water, yes. and maturation climate. Okay. I mean, it, it, it is cool and damp, and it's perfect for long-term maturation. Can you, uh, in brief, uh, tell me about fermentation, distillation? What are you looking for in that f- in that final spirit? W- what is the type of spirit you're you're looking to produce that you are producing? Okay, well, we're very fortunate um, to have to have had the great skill and knowledge of the late great uh, Dr. Jim, Dr. Jim Swan. Um, yeah. yeah, he uh, set us up beautifully, right from design through to spirit. Mm. Um, and with his permission, um, we did actually tweak his formula a little bit mm. because we wanted something a little bit more West Coasty and, and heavy. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not talking. He likes it, he, he likes gyms, it. He likes a lighter. He likes a lighter, quick yeah. maturing spirit. Yeah. We wanted that quick maturing thing, obviously, yeah. but we wanted a bit more oiliness and, and weight because okay. of our, our geography. Okay. So we very simply uh, turned on the rakes and the mash tun, which, even oh. though he specifies and always has done uh, semi lighters, he tells you never to turn them on. Oh, right. Um, so in our case, it was a question of stirring up the oils a wee bit, uh, but um, oh, that's been successful. We run both peated and unpeated. Yes. Uh, peated is only 30 ppm in the in the malt, okay. so it's not too heavy, but it's it's a typical West Coast Highland. Hmm. Uh, reasonably long fermentation, averaging about 72 hours. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, we're now on full production, so that's six days a week to to um, um, shifts um, each day. We run a, a cut very slowly, which is another Jim Swan classic. Okay. Uh, and this is all to do with uh, trying to basically, in his terms, get the spirit into a state where it doesn't need to sit for a long time. Right. Sa- same that he did with Kilhoman. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And right and back Pindaren. into the late 90s yeah. with Glengarry. That was one of his oh, first. yeah, good point. And if you yeah. tried 98, 99 Glengarry, that is a Jim Swan classic. Oh, um, right. But uh, so that's it. And then, of course, uh, maturation in this perfect climate. And we do spend a lot on wood coming from an, in, an independent bottler who likes big whiskies. <laughs> we, we are not skimping on our wood because okay. um, it will pay back long term. Are you similar to Kilhoman and, say, Pendaren as well? Are you getting the casks in still intact? And Yeah. You are. So we buy, we have one supplier in, in the States, in mm. Kentucky. Um, we tried a couple and we, we preferred one, so we're, we're sticking with that. Uh, and from Spain, we have two suppliers. Okay. We have uh, the one that does very well in the industry, good old Miguel. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> and again, we've we've seen what he can offer and we've mm. cherry-picked the ones that we like the best mm. in terms of the, the, the type of wood and yeah. the type of sherry. Okay. And we also have a, a, a sneaky little extra uh, Spanish bodega that supplies us ex-bodega casks. What did you call them? A sneaky, a sneaky little one. extra one. I'm keeping <laughs> close to my chest. <laughs> um, right. Okay. But, the, you know, it, so much is to do with maturation mm. and, and getting it right. Um, 
we also experimented a little bit to start with with smaller casks, not because we wanted to necessarily bottle them more quickly, but we actually wanted to see the, the spirit development. How it would have... And in case would, we had yeah. to change things, we would have seen it in two years' time rather than in 10 years' time. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. But they've come out great, so we have actually bought them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we're running this... this I've this tasted some of the, the two-year-old yeah. at, uh, at the whiskey phase, and I thought it was fantastic. Just great. It's spirit, remarkable right? for its for its, yeah. for its for its age, and I also remember when when it when it was launched and the um, the Alex brought all his distributors um, to Broom Hall and uh, and they they were for, they have they always have an annual mm. meeting in, in October in well, October September yeah and the um, and they were they were asked to fill in the form and to how many cases they wanted for the, the Delphi bottlings sure and also for this new. Ardnamachan, this this spirit, yeah, and I think that they subscribe for seven thousand five hundred bottles or something, and you were bottling two thousand five hundred, just under two and a half, yeah, you know. So there wasn't the so they had to take a very small allocation, <laughs> but it it, 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 it it was it sold out immediately, and yeah. indeed now goes online for ridiculous prices. It's a shame in a funny way, but um, you know, we we never launched it to make it a collectible. Mm-hmm. Um, we we wanted people to kind of see the work in progress. Yeah. And this year we have doubled. Well, we're just literally in the process of bottling it. I've got samples with me for tonight. Brilliant. Um, so we're up to about 5,000 bottles this year. Okay. But it's the first time we're actually into the big casks. So it's giving it a better, giving the, the, the palate a better idea, of, or you the better idea of the okay. palate. Um, Charlie, yesterday you and I were talking about, well, you were talking about China mm-hmm. and the hope that China's passion for whiskey will increase because of the overall, uh, the amount of production of Scotch whiskey has gone up about 61%. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have it as 60.1. 60.1, since, since, yeah. Since 2004. And that's not counting the big expansions of Macallan, Glenlivet, uh, Glenfiddich. Oh, wow. Um, so these are, these are all new distilleries. Um, um, so, I mean, huge increase in um, in, in capacity. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, they're not all working at capacity necessarily, yeah. but the the, the million-dollar question is, where, where's all this juice going to go? Uh, right. And, the, and, you know, the history of Scotch whiskey tells you that the the booms and busts, mm. and the, 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 during the boom years, uh, capacity's increased and production's increased. Um, and then, lo and behold, suddenly, for one reason or another, um, demand... You know, declines and yeah. suddenly, like the whiskey lock in the 1980s, the, you're suddenly left with an awful lot of mature whiskey, um, which which nobody wants. Mm-hmm. And the um, so the, that is the that is a potential problem. Um, so finding new markets and sustaining existing markets, mm-hmm. mature markets, um, is very very important. Now, China is a case in point because it's a huge population. Taiwan, this small island off the coast of China, um, it now stands at, I think, the was the second biggest malt market in the world. Wow. And the, um, behind France? Uh, behind France. Yeah. And, uh, and, but but even, even more than America. Yes. Um, I mean, astonishing. And the, uh, it's, now, it's now declining, would you believe? But the, I don't know what, where it stands now, but the, it, is, it is declining at the moment. But um, the you know the whisk companies look um, uh, at, at the success of Taiwan and think, mm. well, why can't we replicate this in Greater China? 
Um, and in particular, and I've been doing a lot of work with them, Diageo um, came up with this idea, a promotional scheme based upon whiskey education. It's called the Diageo Whiskey Academy. Yeah, and it works with, on three tiers, um, so you can so consumers. It's 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 promoted through their 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 um, um, what do you call it? Their, their, Are the uh, masters of whiskey thing? N- n- no, it's it, WeChat is the is the is oh WeChat. Oh, that's right. The, we were talking about that. WeChat. Yeah, and um, the social media, mm. and so people. Uh, can sign up at, at the base level, the, the first tier, for a day. A day's education costs hundred bucks, yeah. and the um, um, and then if they and then they do they do a we test at the end of that, mm-hmm. and if they pass that, then they can they're they're able to go on to tier two, wow. which is I think three days, costs three hundred bucks, and then if they pass that and they want if they if they're seriously interested, either as consumers or as trade professionals, bartenders, sure. um, yeah. people like that. They can go on the the third tier, the top tier, um, which involves about ten days, including well mainly in Scotland. And that's right. about that's about five grand. Wow. And okay. the, um, but it's incredibly good value because I mean the the the, the um, anyway it's based on 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 education and not only Diageo's brands. I mean it embraces I mean non-Scotch whiskies, bourbons, rye whiskies, okay. Japanese whiskies. Um, and also other the other competitors, if you like, competitors' brands are used. Um, so it's it's a generic promotion, if you like, and the the hope and it's, it's doing terribly well. It's now in its wow. uh, really second year full time, and the the um, and it's doing terribly well. But it's a very intelligent approach to the market, I, I think. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. For as much as people demonize Diageo for being Diageo, right? For being the big conglomerate that's incredibly innovative and the fact that they're focusing on knowledge on education rather than brand brand and models and which they still do right i mean and and they are not alone but for a company to do that and not just focus on their own whiskeys I think that's that's incredible. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's a, it's it's a, it's a brilliant. Um, as you say, it's very in, innovative, and you know, a lot of the the the, the way that whiskey has been promoted in Asia has been through glitzy events yes. and you know, yeah. and flimflam. You know, the the this is much more substantial. Mm. And and I've just come back. I came back from China last night or the night before last, and the uh, having spent ten days there, um, and the the. Um, it's very interesting. The, the traditional drink in, in, in China is, is baijiu, which is, dare I say, pretty awful. And, uh, and of yes, course, the other exactly. thing, for, for those who can afford it, uh, cognac. And it's still a big, yeah. big cognac market. Although now, actually, whiskey is um, number two to baijiu. And I think cognac lies number four. And it's been taken That's up. Whiskey has been taken up um, by younger people, mm. um, by women. Um, so the, the 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 consumer profile is is entirely different uh, from uh, U.S. Yeah. Europe, much of Europe, um, um, and it really it really offers you know a great opportunity. I think uh, mm. hope for the yep. for the whiskey industry in the future. With the idea of different markets, different countries, as w- w- with the Delphi, as you're bottling your casks. Do you have certain casks you bottle for particular markets because they have a particular palate that go along with that cask? Yes. I mean, simple answer is we do. Um, I suppose demand triggers it, though. 
so yeah. that we're not necessarily saying, right, Germany's going to like this one because it's heavily sherried. We would yeah. just expect most of it to go to Germany. Um, oh, right. I mean. yeah. <laughs> what I would say is, that, that as the markets have grown for us, um, gone are the days where we can bottle maybe four single casks and just share them around. It's yeah. physically impossible. Yeah. I mean, you're down to less than a case by the time you've oh, wow. sent it to all the markets. Sure. So we now have to target certain sections, certain sectors, if you like, uh, for each cask. Okay. And and we might have two or three sister casks. One goes to Australasia, one goes to Europe, one goes okay. to America. Yeah, and, and so I was just going to yeah. say, then there's the wild card <laughs> with the 75CL yeah. pain yeah. in the bottle. And South Africa. Oh, and South Africa, yeah. and Canada will accept it as well. Yep. But if you could sell them a 70 CL and <laughs> save 5 CLs worth of whiskey. Now, America, we always treat it as a, as a very separate entity. Um, we bottle unique, exclusive single cast mm. for, for the country. Uh, so we'll do a, a large batch, we'll ship it, and then we'll sit back and wait and, and do another one, you know, whatever, the following year or whatever. Okay. Um, whereas the, the rest of the world get more regular updates. Okay. It's a shame in a way, but it, 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 you know, that's a way you've got to adapt and, and um, yeah. Well, I think the other thing that, that you're contending with too, and, and I'm sure other countries say like Sweden where you, you, you've got some interesting pricing structures and, mm-hmm. and tiers going on is in the U.S. we have the three-tiered Absolutely. system, <laughs> um, which everyone I speak with, they say, well, that's a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a funny one. When you look at the pricing, I mean, with single casks, third-party casks, there's nothing we can do. Mm. We buy it, we sell it, you know? But when you're making this stuff, so I'm talking here, Adam American, yeah. and I'm looking, I'm doing my future projections, I'm actually backtracking for the American market in terms you of pricing. Yeah. You can't, you can't yeah. start at the same level and work up because by yeah. the time you've added three tiers, it's ridiculous. But no whiskey is coming into the U.S. yet. You. Uh, from Art American? From Art American. No, 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 no. We haven't launched a whiskey yet. Yeah, you haven't launched no. it at all. And we haven't, we haven't introduced the, the spirit because there's not enough of it. And okay. there's no point me... I'm, I'm sorry to say there's no point me bottling it in 750s. Really? Because the demand is such that we okay. don't need to. Um, Do you have a guess as to when you may act- have an actual, you know, an official bottling? Tw- 2021. 2021. <laughs> so an eight-year-old? Is that you right? know, uh, no, the, the oldest in it will be seven, but under European law, of course, we have to talk about the youngest, uh, which is more than likely going to be about five. Um, oh, okay. I'm not worried about the quality because we know it's there already. Um, mm-hmm. The reason we're holding back is purely down to quantity. If okay. you bottle too much too soon, mm-hmm. you never get old enough, quite simply. Exactly. So we're holding back until act, we've right? got enough stock to progress beyond that. Um, right. But it will be a mixture of five, six, and seven okay. in the first. Okay. Great. Yeah, I, I, I was telling a story just just a moment ago about the Isle of Arran Distillery yes. and the um, the twenty first birthday, which I was speaking at in October last year. And I was sitting beside the the chairman of the company, who was a very old Irishman, and he is also the principal investor. And he said to me, and it, it res- resonates for me all the time. He said, you know, the one thing I regret more than anything else in life is not investing more early on. Because, of course, at the startup, they had to, they had to um, sell a lot of casks. They of course. Had to, yeah. And so the, the, the amount of 21-year-old whiskey they have left is very small. Mm. Um, and so uh, the, the, the Ardnemurchen approach to, to, to husband your stocks Yes. Um, is 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 the 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 the, the, the way the way to, the way to yeah. go? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 right. It's good to have other forms of income 
while you're sitting on you're sitting on a lot of money that needs to mature. It's, and it's not just the wood and the and the the spirit; it's the warehouses. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, we've just built another three. Yeah. Uh, so we now have five Another already. Three? We have five already now. Where? All right. So how many casks are you sitting on? <laughs> um, uh, we're just over five thousand now. All right. Yeah. Um, but uh, we did. We we have a, an ongoing uh, private cask scheme, which has been our gin, I suppose, if you like. It's been okay. our our uh, early funding. Okay. Uh, we thought long and hard about it. It's it's going to be not difficult, but it's going to certainly cause um, a few administrative issues when it all matures at the same time yeah. or not Every at the same time anyway. so we've made it we've tried yeah. to make the, 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 the terms and conditions fairly straightforward okay. but you know what it adds more than just cash it, it adds brand awareness it adds friends Every people who want to come and sell, see yeah. let's say someone got you know him and, and 10 of his best friends to buy into one of your yeah. casks that is 11 brand ambassadors absolutely yeah yeah, that that it just makes good sense. And we've also we've we've done a little spin-off from it for the local community as well. Mm. Um, we got some pretty interesting headlines out of it. But what we've basically done with the local trust or charity yeah. is to give them or sell them at a discount uh, casks, which they then allocate for the the kids as they're growing up. Okay. And when the child turns eighteen and becomes of legal age, okay. they can then sell the cask back at a profit to us. Yeah. And that profit goes towards their tertiary education. And in the meantime, we're training them. We're giving them the opportunity to stay local in an industry mm. which pays well and you know, gives them something to do. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a win-win for both sides of it. Okay. And, and it launched very well. It was, it's, it, Scotland is currently in the year of the youth, uh, mm-hmm. as in you know, we're looking after our kids and all the rest of it. And everyone took it on board. They said, this is a fantastic thing. But one of the headlines in particular caused a bit of controversy, which I think was the Times, actually. I can't remember the, which newspaper it was, which says, Highland Distillery gives free booze to 10-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, they like that as well. They did. <laughs> Listening back now to that conversation, there was a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, Joshua. Right, where Charlie talked about the overall increase in Scotch whiskey production. Yeah, over, that big number. Right? 60. 60.1%. <laughs> that, that's, mm-hmm. that's a bit specific. A bit specific. I like that. Right? <laughs> and, and you know, we talked about where is that going to go, and he talked about China a bit. He talked about uh, the program that he was working on with Diageo to get an education of, of Scotch whiskey going on there, which I... I thought was cool. And uh, anyway, we don't have to talk about that too much more. I, I just thought it was pretty damn cool. But what's interesting about his comments and the discussion that we had is just three days ago, three, four days ago, we received a message from Greg Martin on our Facebook page, the One Nation Under Whiskey group page. There's a new name for us. I haven't heard Greg Martin's name before. Oh, you haven't? Not on the podcast. I'm sure you've read some of his comments on Facebook. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I don't think we've we've not brought his name up on the podcast before. So welcome to the podcast, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. So he posed a question to us, and it's a really long question. Okay. And let me let me see if I can whittle it down a little bit. He says, uh, "Hello, Joshua and Jason. I love it. He got he got the the order in which our names lie. Perfect. Rookie error. 
Yeah, Carry okay. on. Yeah. He says, I recently watched a three-part documentary by the BBC on Scotch whiskey presented by David Heyman. Uh, if you haven't seen it already uh, and have a few hours to kill, here's a link to part one. And so he gave it to us, but I think to everybody else on our page. And we've got... Awesome. We've got a little over 500 people in our Facebook page. So it, it's it's a series to check out. And Greg was nice enough to give us the link for us all to check out that documentary. He goes on, he says, The question I wanted to put to you both derived from a short interview between David and the manager of the English Whiskey Company regarding the future of whiskey in the near end of episode three, where the general consensus is that the future is great for Scotch whiskey, et cetera, et cetera, which is nice to hear. But the English whiskey company guy basically was a bit more cynical (laughs) (laughs) Um, and pointed out that that distilleries uh, such as McAllen have doubled production with their new massive facility. It's actually much more than double doubling their production, if we're being honest here. He says, does that mean they expect to be selling twice as many bottles as before? If they do manage to sell twice as many as before, then surely it will come at the expense of other distilleries slash bottlers as the market becomes saturated by McAllen. As we've been hearing for years, the supply is struggling to meet demand, but as many existing distilleries have increased productions along with the influx of the new distilleries in the Central Belt, Lowlands, (laughs) I told you this was long. Um, This is good, though. No, it is good. good It is good, yeah. With the product of their own in the next few years and revival of Port Ellen, Brewer, and Rosebank, he really did a lot of research with this question. I like it. Are we in real danger, in your opinion, that we could be faced with the same situation we had in the late 70s, early 80s uh, with the whiskey lock and the subsequent closure of failing distilleries? As much as we hear whiskey is booming, all I see being drunk en masse here in the UK and Scotland is the same old beer, wine, vodka, and bucket loads of gin. We all love the amber nectar but it still seems far from fashionable enough to support all this extra product. Sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but the fandom of single malts is such these days within the whiskey community compared to the early 80s that I can't imagine that the shitstorm if Boonahabin or Bal Blair or Glenn Farkless was mothballed. Your thoughts? (laughs) Yeah, I think the the short answer to that is there's definitely a another whiskey loch in our future. There's just no doubt about it. But the slightly more nuanced answer, and the answer that I get, because I ask that exact question of every industry person that I meet, Mm -hmm. is look at the percentage of new make spirit distilled in Scotland that goes on to have a life as a featured single malt. Yeah still a small number mm-hmm. blends are still the, um, the the strength of the whiskey industry yes and so when when we look around and 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 Greg here is looking around yeah we're, we're not seeing our friends drinking the popular stuff mm. we're seeing people we we don't know Drinking the popular stuff, yeah, blitzing yeah. through all the things that were just listed there. There's a small percentage of us are single malt nuts. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the uber geeks of this. And we can only support the market so much. Yeah. But I don't think these distilleries who are expanding their operations are worried too much about our consumption and our waning support. Mm-hmm. They're instead looking at burgeoning markets. They're instead looking at a younger consumer who gets in on the blend end of things, the affordable end of things, sure. and consumes. Will that consumer move on to something else? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, it's inevitable. You know, If you cast your mind back to the 1980s, nobody thought vodka would ever be toppled from its place at the top of the consumption table. Now, and, and, and to the extent that whiskey producers were trying to emulate what vodka was doing, American light whiskey, light whiskey was born, sure. yeah. uh, which, which we love and we release. Cut to 2018, vodka's trying to do the things that whiskey does to try and get some eyeballs back onto its product. Oh, yeah, as, sure. Absolute right, oak. As, Right, right. Uh, and, and so there's an inevitability there that consumers will move on to the next thing. Mm. But here's the thing, and, and I'm glad Greg says I don't want to be a Debbie Downer about this because you and I are quite positive about this turn. Oh, yes. And, and it's funny because it just perfectly in today's interview, um, you've got Alex and Charlie talking about the early days of Adelphi where they were offered... Old stock, they were offered terrific casks. Oh, the spring uh, banks, right? Right. <laughs> the, the pricing was fantastic. And, and you and I have been talking for a good number of years now that when the market starts to, you know, crest and start to come down the other side of that hill, we're going to see some good pricing. We're going to see some good whiskey. And we're starting to see that already. The pricing's right. coming down a little bit. Right. We're going to see some really good stock that doesn't have a home in a burgeoning market. Yeah. That doesn't have a home with a younger consumer who wants to pay less yeah. money. Right. The people like you, like me, like Greg, like the members of our Facebook group, the people that support us on Single Cast Nation, they are still going to be there. Yeah, and another thing is going to happen, and I think we saw this in the late 70s, we saw it in the early 80s, as the popularity of whiskey starts to decline, because this this has been cyclical, this up, down, mm-hmm. up, down, mm-hmm. you look at the history and it's just a, nat- a natural cycle, but yep. if you look at the blends of the late 70s and early 80s, uh, you know, even through the 80s, all of the sudden, the quality of those blends improved greatly because A, distilleries needed to sell stock to independent bottlers, but they also needed to find a home where they couldn't sell it elsewhere. They needed to find a home to sell it, to, you know, to sell what they're sitting on so they can make a yep. bit of money. And you'll find that all of a sudden Johnny Walker Red became big and rich and full of flavor and 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 the same would ring true with doers and and you name it and and so as the whiskey boom starts to to wane you'll see the quality of blends go up a little bit 
hopefully you'll see some more interesting things coming out of independent bottlers, potentially with some better pricing. Um, I, I think it's going to be quite interesting and, and fun. And, and to Greg's question about distilleries closing, yeah. one of the questions that I ask of every distiller that I encounter is what happens when the popularity wanes a little bit? And, and, a, and a lot and I say, will there be closures? And they say, with the boom, with the catch up that we were doing for, you know, the last 10 years, mm-hmm. last 12 years, uh, with that catch up, we went to seven days a week. We went to three shifts a day. We can pull that back. We can go to five days a week. We can go to two shifts a day. We don't need to be closing the distillery to reduce the output of the distillery. Not to be a Debbie Downer, but I'm going to be a Debbie Downer. I would imagine they said similar things back in the in the early 80s when they said, you know, we can we can pull back. We see things happening here. If things get dire, things get dire. If there is another financial global financial crash, uh, things are going to change a bit. But here's where I'm going to posit something that I even surprise myself with this. Right. And I, I, I have no idea if this is true. I'm just positing it as a working hypothesis. Mm-hmm. You look at the money that is in whiskey now. Yeah. You look at these global corporations who are in charge of whiskey now. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they look at the history of this industry. Mm-hmm. And they say, we're, we're going to play catch up now and we're going to expand to meet demand. And I wonder if they've got their eyes on the next boom. They're already playing a 30 year long game where they're saying we're going to be ready instead of playing catch up 30 or 40 years from now. We're going to start laying down now. And we know that we'll be able to meet market demand when the boom comes back. Now, that's going to take a lot of storage, a lot of money locked up in new make spirit and casks and warehousing. And paychecks. And paychecks. Right. But I, I, I can't help but wonder. I don't think global corporations go quiet overnight or over a decade or two or three. So I, like I say, I have no idea if that's actually what they're doing, but I can't help but wonder if they're showing greater wherewithal mm. this time around. They understand, you know, people we speak to, Joshua, say, I don't know if I want to talk about a bubble bursting, but I can see a gentle slowdown in demand. But no, nobody wants to talk about the bubble bursting publicly. But I do wonder if they see a slowdown, how pronounced the slowdown might become, and then being in a position yeah. once it starts ratcheting up again in another three decades, four decades, to be prepared. Obviously, time will tell, but I think we will have a better understanding sooner rather than later. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No doubt about that. Well, you and I are going to get more information every five years. Um, of where this really is going. But right now, looking 30 or 40 years out in answer to Greg's question, I'm, you know, I've, I've got some faith that people in boardrooms know what they're doing, mostly because they don't want to piss off, piss off shareholders. But 
but we'll we'll see. I think it's well worth watching. When you, you know, we're watching an evolving whiskey industry. People in boardrooms not wanting to piss off shareholders. I would think they would more quickly jump to anything else to make the money they need to to satisfy the shareholders. And maybe this is my distrust of corporate America, corporate Canada, corporate Scotland, corporate whoever. First and foremost, they need to to please their shareholders, and they're going to do whatever it takes. And if that means they need to save money by shutting down distilleries A, B, C, and D while focusing their efforts on the next new gin or the next new vodka or what have you, they're, they're, they're going to do that. Um, I don't mean to sound so negative. If anything, I kind of feel I'm being a bit of a realist and you're looking at it through some rose-colored glasses. What can I say, Josh? I was inspired by your fawning praise of Diageo during your conversation with Charlie. (laughs) Hey, you've you've got to give credit where credit is due. You've turned your back on them fast. So... Thanks to, to Charlie and for Alex for sitting down for that interview with you. Yeah. Thanks to Greg for a great question. They are wonderfully detailed. Yeah. And I will be searching out that documentary myself. Um, I think we're going to pivot to the news. And unusually, within the news segment, we will have another email. Isn't that true? Isn't that interesting? So you better go wake up the paper. <laughs> I'd like discovering new ways to wake up the paper boy. Wake up! Extra, extra! In terms of news, we have got one point that we're going to make in this episode, mm-hmm. and you, Joshua, made a grand announcement. I did on the Facebooks, and it also went out to our full email list, mm-hmm. letting our members know that we have a ten-year, nine-month wild turkey cask coming. Yes, and. I believe somebody might have said this to me actually during the week, but did we focus in an in a podcast episode about a cask being sent to us in error? We did. Okay. Yeah. yeah I yeah. don't remember that. Well, we you know we we had initially talked about it on our podcast. It was our second interview with Eddie Russell. Okay. Where this that was really the first time we publicly talked about wild turkey <laughs> making a mistake and sending us the wrong cask, gotcha. and we asked Eddie, you know, is it okay that we talk about this? And he was, you know, Eddie being Eddie, he's just cool as a cat, and uh, and he was totally fine about it. And you know what? They made up for their mistake. They allowed us to. How should I say this? Um, I wouldn't say they allowed us to sit on the cask. But we chose to sit on the cast. Um, the, way, the way things work out. <laughs> you, you know, when uh, month after month gets away from you and you're the cask that's now in, in your own warehouse uh, waiting to be bottled at, at some date, we just kind of let it sit there for a little over a year. We did. We did and, indeed. You know, when we. It, f- yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I was just in, in terms of the, the details for this erroneous cask. Uh, we're talking Rickhouse K mm-hmm. from the sixth floor, mm-hmm. uh, bottled at 61.75% alcohol. 61.8, if we're going to be uh, 
pedantic. Oh yes, you 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 used the wrong label in the announcement. I remember. I did. Now. I did. Yeah. Okay, so that was me repeating your error back to you, just for the record. <laughs> um, but but the reason I'd reached out to you when you made the announcement, I reached out to you because you were talking about there's not a lot of ten year old single cask. We know at natural cast strength is rare as hen's teeth anyway, but there's not a lot of ten year old wild turkey out there. Well, 10, almost 11-year-old, it really, it, it, for the most part, doesn't exist. You've got Close when... Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. But <laughs> when, <laughs> when Wild Turkey releases their Kentucky Spirit for single, single cask releases, that whiskey tends to be around eight years old or so. And it's the nine-year-old stuff that becomes the, the Russell's reserve single single barrel picks and they just don't let it get beyond that typically typically so we had received this whiskey as a nine-year-old and just let it sit until it was an almost 11 year old and that's just me playing horseshoes (laughs) (laughs) remind me never to play hand grenades with you um so so there'll be 130 bottles of this available Mm -hmm. This will be our first time going to a lottery system. Yes. A number of people have reached out nervous that they'll only get lottery information via Facebook. That is not the case. Yeah. You will also get lottery information emailed direct to your inbox. Do keep an eye open for Single Cast Nation emails coming into your inbox. Mm-hmm. And then you'll complete a Google form and um, that'll create a spreadsheet for us. We'll do a random number generator, and if you're one of the lucky cell entries that has that number, uh, you'll get an email with the hidden URL to be able to purchase one bottle. Yes, yeah. Uh, and despite our May, uh, our, our two May casks selling out in three minutes, and despite $101 being cheap as chips, and despite some people flipping this immediately and despite us reaching out to those people to tell them please don't do that we are keeping the price point at 101 dollars we heard from many 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 members who said thank you for making this a price that i can afford to buy it Mm -hmm. and open it and drink it and that is the whole cause of single cast nation affordable top quality drinking single casks you know david jennings at at rare bird 101 posted Mm -hmm. the label he's got both his blog rarebird101.com and a patreon site which i'm you know we are a a part of that you know we we support that i'm Mm -hmm. still trying to fully understand what patreon is or does for for people you know i know uh, david sort of announces things early on there but he made a point to to people when he posted the label. People said, you know, oh, geez, I really want to crack at this. Hopefully I can get some. And he talked about how we have this no flipping policy put into place at 130 bottles and thousands of members and more members coming on every day because of stuff like this. When we sell a bottle, it's typically to folks that want to open it and share mm-hmm. it and enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. And when people miss out and they see other people flipping it for five to ten times the original cost, 
they get pissed off at them and they get pissed off at us. And so we had to implement this uh, no flip policy on this stuff. And and we've been pretty strict about it and we've probably upset people. But Mm -hmm. I'd rather make drinkers happy and true fans happy than, you know, make other people a bit of money. No, I agree. Just I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So, as promised, there's an email question from our good friend Michael Bloom. Uh, yeah. He says, I appreciate the detailed answer to my Facebook question about the Wild Turkey Funk on the Wild Turkey episode. And mm-hmm. um, we should say the, the most recent Wild Turkey episode with right. Bruce Russell. Yep. A great answer, but also sad since I'm out of luck finding that funkin' new stuff (laughs) and need to figure out where to find some old bottles to get it back. He then goes on to ask, what old wild turkey products featured the funk best? And when did it stop? I heard it was connected to the Pernod purchase, but don't know that date. Thanks for any additional info. Now I will put his question to you, Joshua. Well, to be honest, I think I think Bruce answered that a little bit. I mean, part of it, part of the change came around sometime around the time that Wild Turkey increased their entry ABV of their spirit into cask. Right. They, oh, okay. Right. Yep. They they used to fill at a lower ABV. And now they started to fill at a higher ABV, which my understanding is that really has nothing to do with uh, a Pernod Ricard purchase or a Campari purchase or anything like a changing of hands there. It became a bit of an industry standard that I think was driven by Seagram's slash LDI slash MGP. That's my understanding of it. Now... The exact year. I probably should have done some research on this, and, and, well, and I did. It's didn't. 1980. Per, Is it 1980? Yeah, Pernod bought Wild Turkey in 1980. But that's not what Come, I'm talking about. But but I was yeah. just filling that in. On, oh, okay. As, as so, part right. of Michael's question, and then yeah. Campari bought Wild Turkey from Pernod in 2009. So. Right, but but again, I personally do not feel as if that changed it because there's plenty of wild turkey cheesy gold foil that has the funk in it and there were some 90s bottlings of the cheesy gold foil so and i think that there were some bottlings a bit after that as well that featured the funk at it so i don't think that the funk changed because of an the acquisition of the distillery by a particular corporation. I think it has to do specifically with the barrel entry proof. Nice. Oh, yeah. Nice. I like that. <laughs> I know. Oh, gosh. It was so hard coming out of like my mouth. I like the sigh you made after that. That was awesome. <laughs> like you just caught yourself. Like, oh, oh, gosh, oh I just proof. said proof. <sighs> yeah, so. it's, it's funny. Uh, back to that on, on the... The Rare Bird Patreon site, you know, people are commenting, oh, you know, I hope I can get a bottle. Oh, that looks great. And and someone had posted this number. They said it was, you know, 123.5, whatever, it, whatever the number was. And I had no idea what this guy was saying. And really? I, I didn't. I thought, you know, maybe did I... Did I mistype something on the label? I'm looking at the label, not understanding what that is. And so I had to respond on on the page and I said, What's that? You know, come again. 
And it was David who said, you know, he's talking about the proof. Oh, my goodness. I hadn't even thought about that. I keep forgetting that people look at an ABV and they say, I'm going to multiply that to get the proof. That's not even possible. It is possible. I I just don't think about that. You know I don't think about that. Uh, What I would say to Michael Bloom, of course, is keep your eye on Rare Bird 101. Because David Jennings could probably tell you individual bottles that have the wild turkey funk on them. Oh, that's a good point. And so use him as a resource. Uh, yeah, David is is fantastic, and his knowledge is exemplary. Yeah, through his blog or through his Instagram, and now he's he's subjected himself to Twitter. I feel really oh, bad for him. Poor guy. It's a terrible place to live in. Any more news for the week, Joshua? I don't think so. I'm sure there's stuff to talk about, but I don't feel like talking about it. Yeah, let's let's keep this one moving along and transition into our final segment, misconceptions. Before we do, let me just remind people and keep your goddamn fingers away from that fast forward button. Yeah. Yeah, you. Yeah, we you. We saw you. 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 Yeah. Uh, Knock it off. Yeah, hey, if you would like to send us a question, you could do so. You could email us questions at one nation under whiskey. You could do what Greg did, go to facebook.com, look in your search bar, one nation under whiskey. There's a, there's a group page. You could pose your question there. Uh, you could also Instagram us at One Nation Under Whiskey. You could tweet at us if you reside in Twatterton, and that's at One Nation Whiskey. And remember, whiskey is always spelled without the E. And the, the last thing that I want to say is please go to iTunes and give us a nice five star rating. If you like our podcast, Please let us know. Let other people know so that they can find us. We've got a lot of great reviews, a lot of people saying some good things, and and we love that. But if you could talk about it on iTunes, if you could tell your friends, we just we want to get into more people's ears, if you will. I think we went an entire summer without any written reviews on the iTunes. Uh, We received one in June or July. Oh, I haven't seen anything beyond me. You need to revisit, my friend. Hmm, I checked just recently, but I shall go a-hunting. Okay, so with that said, and and well said, Joshua Hatton. Thank you, sir. If when you have the opportunity to ask a Charlie McLean, (laughs) who has travelled the world and discussed whiskey with just about everybody there is to discuss whiskey, Mm -hmm. what misconception he encounters... And we have a chance to ask Alex Bruce, who is now in charge of a new Scottish distillery. Wow. We got, yeah. we got some good answers here. I think we did indeed. When they first started talking about it, I was a bit nervous because I thought, oh, are we going to tread the same ground? But it was a completely different take. On, but he, yeah, and here's ahead. what's interesting about treading the same ground. There are one or two misconceptions that everybody encounters all All the the time time. and that's really where charlie's answer starts and it just goes to show everybody in the industry encounters these exact misconceptions all the bloody time Mm. and so we all need to be discussing these misconceptions but the the answer goes on from there but it's just so prevalent yes so so over to those two chaps for their misconceptions well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the preconception that you must drink whiskey straight. Um, this is a complete misconception. It, whiskey benefits from a drop of water. 
for for appreciation, mm. for enjoyment, of course. Drink it as you like, ice, lemonade, Coke, ginger ale, whatever. <laughs> um, but for appreciation, particularly of malt whiskey, sure. Scotch malt whiskey, um, water is a good thing. The amount of water is entirely up to you, but water is, water is a good thing. What other misconceptions? The age thing is a very tricky one. Um, uh, age is not a guarantee of quality. We've, Alex and I have discovered some amazing, there's the famous Glenrothes, which started at five years old. 67.2% um, alcohol, that one? That was well, one of the that 12, was, the, no, 19, I think we did in the Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was but, I mean, good that whiskey. Was, <laughs> and, I mean, we, we, we have been lucky enough to look at some young whiskies, which are of really superlative quality. Mm -hmm. And also looking at some some very old whiskies, which really are a little bit dull. Past their due date, exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So age is not a guarantee, but nevertheless, the the um, age is a is a, a, a guide, mm. to, uh, generally a guide to complexity mm. at, at its best. Um, but you know, the wood can take over and, and dominate. It can and, do, and, yeah. and the, the, the very old whiskies tend to sort of grow together flavor wise. It's very difficult to tell where they've come from. Sure. And so. Um, well, I would, add, I would add to that. I mean, we, because it's another, it's a slightly other uh, preconception as well, but it relates to age. Um, we kind of stumbled upon uh, an idea for um, blending international whiskies, uh, fusion. Oh. Basically, yeah. a few years ago, we started with a thing called the Glover, which is Japanese oh, the Glover. Well. That's yeah. right. Yes, 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 yes. And anyway, it's been great, and, and I've had a lot of fun um, sourcing and blending because you have a whole different flavor profile to work with. Mm. But one of the more recent ones, which we've done with um, the the great Amrut Distillery in Bangalore. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, when you're dealing with um, hotter country distilleries, you're dealing with mature yes. whiskies at a much younger age yeah. and most of the amber is ready well and truly ready by five years old oh yeah and we are not shy about putting an age statement on our boxes as you shouldn't be yeah so that's great. the e and k as we call it the elgin and kincardin which is amber and currently blended with i think ardmore and glenrothes the youngest constituent is the amber which is five years old that's what it says on the box and there was an almighty scathing review on one of the uk uh, retailing websites which i won't okay. mention <laughs> Probably from someone in the UK because they don't get it. Yeah. Quite simply, um, the old school doesn't get it. Saying, how can the whiskey company be so greedy to charge 140 quid for a five-year-old blend? And underneath it, if you were to Google EMK mm. by Adelphi, the next thing down in Google on the search engine would show whiskeybase.nl, which is where people actually naturally yes. put in yes. their reviews. And they're giving it eight or nine out of 100. Yeah. And this guy hadn't even tried it because he'd bypassed it because of the age and the price. Right, because those, there are certain people that follow flavor yeah. and others that the follow labels and the, the price tag yeah. along yeah. with it. And, you know, Billy Abbott had, had done a tasting earlier and the fifth whiskey out of six, I think, was one of the, the best whiskeys in, in the lineup. And he, everything was blind. So I nosed it, I tasted it, I said... This tastes like really good Kalila. Just a well done, somewhere in the teens Kalila. Wonderful balance. Nose palate to finish, it was gorgeous. Came out, it was Peter Edgardar. It was Balakin. <laughs> yeah. And I would never have guessed that. And, you know, Edgardar had at one time a bit of a reputation of 
not such great distillate. There's some soapy ones, just like with Beaumont and FWP, which is my love. But I would never have guessed that. And I would have a preconceived notion or misconception that that may not fit my palate. And then I drank it blindly and I said, wow, that is good. I'm, yeah. I'm prepared to open my wallet. And I, and I think that's it. You, you've got a lot of people that will look for flavor and other people that will just make assumptions. They look at an age... They look at a price and they say that's never going to be worth yeah. it. And, and don't, get, don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. Yeah, uh, the guy has every right to to make his own opinion yeah. because we've been you know honest and said what it is on the box. Yeah. But is in a way, it's a shame that they don't experiment more. And I think that's yeah. up to us to kind of yeah. to to get that education out. Education. There. Yeah, it's all about education. Charlie, Alex, thank you. Really appreciate the time that you spent, the conversation that we had. It was a pleasure meeting you both, and I personally look forward to seeing you again, and, and hopefully next time, Jason, you will be in tow. I, I have. I have given up the, the Passover call of next year in Jerusalem, and I have adopted next year in Amsterdam. Are you going to come to Amsterdam with me? I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> you need to. You need I, oh, I, oh, I know. Listen, I know. I, I, I'm not going to lie here. When I say yeah. malt stock is yeah. easily and by a long stretch yeah. the best whiskey festival on earth to date for yeah. those who are true whiskey lovers, fanatics, nerds, geeks, it is, and it's so friendly and it's so relaxed and... For those who want to hear a little bit of what happens after the campfire tasting, which ends malt stock, when people have had a lot to drink and maybe have a guitar in their hand. Oh, gosh. I interviewed, uh, speaking of teases, I interviewed Sammy Simmons, uh, formerly the global brand ambassador of the Belveni, now with Adam Brands, which... Basically, he's the guy who looks after that boutique whiskey company now. Indeed he does. And uh, we had a little fun with uh, with a guitar and, and a few people and some loud uh, voices, people who love karaoke. So, Oh, gosh. That's going to be the Easter egg for today. You haven't even heard this yet, Jason. <laughs> I, I haven't. I'm not sure I will hear it. Oh, you're going to hear You're going to hear every <laughs> second of it in all of its glory. Uh, well, as always, Joshua, thank you for doing some awesome travel and getting some real top-notch interviews out of this one. And for editing the episode, hopefully we've made it easy for you today. Thanks, as always, to the listeners for mm -hmm. giving us their ears. We're always appreciative of that. And like the cat who brings you the dead bird, sometimes we want to give you two-hour-long episodes. <laughs> and sometimes, like the owner of those cats, I hear from some people... Could you not do that? And so I haven't heard a single person say that. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. I, I just tell people like listen to it over several days. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know why people are getting confused. I, over and this. and there, are, this. there are people like our good friend uh, Joe Grakowski, uh -huh. who is desperate for these long episodes because he uses them while he's driving around. So, you know. You can't please everyone all the time. You can't, Joshua. We please ourselves. And that's all I really care about. Not Is that, that a masturbation way. joke? 
that's the one-handed hello. What is that? But you know what? I need to thank you. Jason. Oh no, you no, you don't. You I definitely do. don't. I, oh. I do, and here's why. Because the last two episodes, at the very end, you go on to thank me for for this and that and editing, and my response has been, Yeah, sure. Sure thing. That and I have not me. reciprocated. No, I have not thanked no, you. No, one thing about this world, Joshua, <laughs> is we do not give thanks simply to receive thanks. We give thanks to show appreciation. You do not need to thank me in return. I and now disagree. it would feel hopelessly forced. So We've had this conversation before. It's like when you stop at a four-way intersection and you give the, you give the wave to let people go and they don't wave back. You need to show a little bit of appreciation for those who have said good things, have done kind things. Life and good deeds should never go unthanked. Your good friendship is thanks enough. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, peoples, we will catch you on the next episode. Cheers, Josh. Cheers, Jason. And it's Joshua. What's another one? Uh, <laughs> What's the other one? Yeah. What's the song? Tommy used to work on the dock. Union's been on strike. He's down on his luck. It's tough. So tough. <laughs> Gina dreams of running away. away. When she cries in the night. Nice. <laughs> Baby, it's okay. <laughs> It's not a Slayer song, is that what you say? Yeah, it's not. Right, it's not Angel of Death. Angel of Death, Ashwitz, the meaning of pain, the way that I want you to die. Oh, yes. Remember that shit? I could do a little Jesus Saves if you need it. Do it. Somebody get the lyrics up, we'll be all right. Yeah, up in the morning. And I ain't got nothing to say. I go to bed in the evening. 
change my clothes, my chairs, my face. I was looking for nothing. I don't know how it goes. Yes. Come on, guys. Oh, baby, I just know that there is. Can't start a fire. Can't start a fire without a spark. This gun. Good point. We, we missed the actual lighting, so we need a tutorial. How do you start a fire? Uh, <laughs> that goes into lot. That goes into everything. I'm, it does. Uh, Sam, so I'm playing encore. Like, and you have to like kill it. <sighs> when you hear this. <sighs> I'm like, right, guys. We really need to learn that. This is the encore. What's the song you? Don't play? patronize me, you <laughs> pricks. <laughs> so actually, Madonna. Oh, life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. I hear you call my name, and it feels like home. Yes, fuck yes. <laughs> when you call my name, it's like a little prayer. I see always down on my knees. I wanna take you there in the midnight hour. I can feel your power just like a breath. I wanna take you there. You feel the love tonight. Oh, you're getting Australian here. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest fan, I'll follow you until you love me, Papa. Paparazzi, you well. Where did that? And then there's a journey song in there. Yeah, fucking journey oh, yeah. song. Yeah. I hear it. Yeah. Yes. Um. Just a small town boy. Born in something toy. It took the midnight train going anywhere. Just a small town girl. <laughs> In this lonely world Poor girl Take a midnight train going anywhere <laughs> So lonely So lonely <laughs> So Billy <laughs> So Billy There's a YouTube so song in there as well So Billy <laughs> See the sun set in your eyes See the soft and Are you wearing your sunglasses for this? Oh my god, keep going. Irish, 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 Irish. I think it's good. Self-righteous. Irish. Oh, there's a Lady Gaga song in there as well. Yeah, we, we did that. Yeah. Did we do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you go half time, you can do. Um, yeah, hit it. Sometimes I feel same chords like I don't have <laughs> no, 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 no. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. That would that feel is like Bob Marley. She's like, what? That's a Bob Marley. Well, my no cry. Yes, guys. Yes. 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 
Just keep on doing Let's that do over that. and over again. Until we get it right, guys. Come on. No woman, no cry. Say, 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 say. Say that later. Say stop. Enjoy your stop, dude.